Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have again heard your word today, we pray, Lord, that you would draw it out, Lord, and place it into our hearts as we contemplate it, Lord, that you would use it, Lord, to dwell in us and to grow us up in you. In Jesus' name, amen. When I went to university to study theology, I was in for a big surprise. I found out there that professors in religious studies know nothing about God. Now, of course, that's a general statement, I know, and I have to admit, not true about all professors, just most of them in that department. I have to say that I learned more about God from the philosophy department than I did from religious studies, and especially more than there than in my Old and New Testament classes. And it wasn't just I that noticed that. While I was doing a final exam for a philosophy class, the professor of that class from the philosophy department came around and asked me what department I was studying in. I answered religious studies, and he just shook his head and commented back, they're such skeptics there, aren't they? That was absolutely true. What did I learn in my Bible classes? Well, I learned historical criticism, textual criticism, source criticism, form criticism, literary criticism, redaction criticism, rhetorical criticism, canonical criticism, narrative criticism, and on and on and on. And I didn't master them, of course. There are over 80 methods of criticism I found out, but I learned almost nothing about the content of the biblical books at all as I studied in university. My theology classes were better, of course. I, I, I did learn the theology of many theologians, but still nothing much about God. In fact, the best that they could do was to talk about what God was not. And that, of course, was much better than the negative criticism uh, from the biblical classes. When you think of any sort of biblical criticism at all, it comes down to man judging the text of the Bible with man's invented methods. And in fact, it's hard to find a method that considers the meaning of the message of the text at all. It is putting man in the place of God and judging God's work, God's word. When God's word is actually meant to judge man. What it comes down to is this. God says he created man in his own image. But secular man says man created the Bible, not God. And in doing so, 
man created God in man's image. That is what we're up against. Up against in the universities, in our societies, and even in the church to some extent, as many ministers came through the same training that I had. The scientific response to the Bible is that the existence of God cannot be proven, while the existence of man needs not be. And therefore, it is assumed that the Bible is all from man. Well, it is true that man cannot prove God's existence. God made it to be so. God must reveal his existence, and God has, and he continues to do so. God has revealed himself in the very creation and the very existence of man. God has revealed himself in the rest of creation as well. In Isaiah 6.3, the seraphim cried out, The whole earth is full of his glory, of God's glory. And it is. Why can't some people see it? Romans 1.19-20 says, Because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made, so people are without excuse. That's Romans 1, 19-20. People are without excuse. So the question, again, is why does man not comprehend God's revelation? Where are they looking? What are they seeking? God has continued to reveal himself, not only through his creation, but through prophets and apostles who were inspired to write Holy Scripture. He continues to reveal himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And even now, he continues to reveal himself in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's work in his church. So that man, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 1, is without excuse. God must reveal his existence, his own existence, and he has done so, and he continues to do so over and over again. And that is what God, through the book of Isaiah, did. And that is what he is doing in Holy Scripture, revealing who he is. And he says in the book of Isaiah, I am the Lord. I have no peer. There is no God but me. He says, who is like me that can tell you the things that will happen before they happen? 
But man often replies, There is no such one. Or man complains to God about who he made him. In the portions of the chapters of Isaiah that we read today, God revealed his omniscience, his knowledge of all things past, present, present and future. And God revealed his control over everything as well. He did so in speaking through Isaiah. And he spoke in these chapters of a ruler to come, an earthly ruler, a man, a man who would be named Cyrus. Who was Cyrus? The reader of Isaiah is first introduced to Cyrus back in chapter 41, actually, in verse 2, as one from the east, one who would rapidly conquer the known world. God asks, asks in um, verse 2 of chapter 41, who stirs this one up from the east? Who officially commissions him for service? He hands nations over to him and enables him to subdue kings. He makes them like dust with a sword, like windblown straw with his bow. He pursues them and passes by unharmed, he advances with great speed. Who acts and carries out decrees? Who summons the successive generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am present at the very beginning and at the very end. I am the one. Well, well Haley's uh, commentary regarding Isaiah 44 and 45, Haley's Bible handbook says this. It says, these two chapters are a forecast of Israel's return from the captivity under Cyrus. It goes in, into great detail, of course, about that. With special emphasis, Haley says, on God's unique power to predict the future. Cyrus, king of Persia, reigned 538 to 529 BC. He permitted the Jews to return to Jerusalem and issued a decree authorizing the rebuilding of the temple. And that's recorded in 2 Chronicles 36, 22 to 33 and Ezra 1, 1 to 4. Haley goes on, Isaiah prophesied in 745 to 695 BC. That was over 150 years before the days of Cyrus. Yet he calls him by name and he predicts that he would rebuild the temple which in Isaiah's day had not yet fallen. The main point of these two chapters, Haley goes on, is that God's superior is is that God's superiority over idols is proved by his ability to foretell the future. An idea that recurs 
all through the chapters 40 to 48. The calling of Cyrus by name long before he was born is given as an example of God's power to declare things yet to come. If this is not a prediction, it does not even make sense in the connection in which it is used. Critics who assign these chapters to post-exilic authorship have strange ideas about contextual unity. Well, what is Haley talking about? I'll tell you what he's talking about, giving you an example of the type of secular biblical criticism that I received from, uh, from university using our text today, our Old Testament text today. The critics believe that that text was not written by Isaiah, but by Deutero-Isaiah. In other words, a second Isaiah, or someone posing as Isaiah years after the fact, after Cyrus's time and after Cyrus's reign. They say, how else could they have, could he have known? That's how they deal with it. That's how they deal with biblical prophecy. In other words, the authors or the redactors of many of our books of the Bible were actually deceiving their readers, trying to get them to believe in their God using pseudo-prophetic writings of um, speaking about a false or non-existing God, existed God in, in the opinions of the critics, of course. Well, of course, they would think that if that's what they believed the sources to be. And they say the same thing about many of the New Testament books as well. And they have to, because otherwise they'd have to acknowledge a mind that is greater than their own in an unseen supernatural realm that they don't believe in. They would have to acknowledge a God of the universe who they don't believe in. And of course, all the critics are from universities. They have the university degrees that prove their superior knowledge. How can you argue with them? But just remember that these universities focus on humanities. Even in their theology departments, they don't focus on divinity. In fact, now they are finally admitting that and putting the study of the Bible, the books of the Bible, under the Faculty of Arts with other human works. Unfortunately, many, many churches have their ministers trained in such secular places. Well, why is all of this relevant? 
to us as Christians today, of course, it raises up the danger of being misled, of believing people who have training uh, beyond uh, what we have. But it's also relevant because we are dealing with the same God and the same human beings this whole time throughout history. And the same time, God in Christ Jesus says that if we are disciples of his, then we are like Cyrus. Now, how is that, you, you might ask, that Jesus says that? Well, this is how. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that remains. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. John 15, 16. You see, God chose us, Jesus' followers, just as he did choose Cyrus for a specific purpose. His word in Ephesians 2 says this, for we are his creative work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we can do them. You see, God desires to reveal himself in us by the Holy Spirit in us. Even before the Holy Spirit was given to the church, God said, through Jeremiah, I, the Lord, do these things. I, the Lord, form the plan to bring them about. I am known as the Lord. I say to you, call on me in prayer, and I will answer you. I will show you great and mysterious things that you still do not know about. And he says the same to his witnesses today. So it's more than that we are like Cyrus, we are also like Isaiah, prophets of God, if we have indeed God's spirit. Well, what's our response? What's our response to that? Do we say yes and amen and, and listen to God and act in his spirit as he empowers us, revealing God and his word to others? The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 1, 3, By this, the love of God is revealed in us, that God has sent his one and only Son into the world that we may live through him. I ask you, what does that mean to you? It doesn't say by this, the love of God is revealed to us. 
though that is also true, but it says, by this, the love of God is revealed in us, that God has sent his one and only Son into the world so that we may live through him. God is revealed in us to others when we live our lives through his Son, Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Spirit that he put into us. God is revealed when we abide in him. When we love one another as he loved us, he is revealed when we walk by the Spirit and do not fulfill the desires of our sinful flesh. When we deny self-desires from rising above him and we give him full control of our lives. Then we see God and we reflect him. We see him and we reflect him when we seek him with all our heart. He promises it. Now, why might that, might that not be happening? Well, it might not happen if you are, you are willingly disobedient to his word or his spirit even if you call yourself a Christian. It might not happen or will not happen if you are not seeking him first and with all your heart. Now I know that all of us slip into those times now and then as our adversary is always on the prowl and always at work trying to lure us away from our good shepherd, Jesus, but our shepherd is always also calling us back by his word and his spirit and coming after us. And he is calling us again today. He's calling out to everyone. As the Apostle Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17, 24 to 27, the God who made the world and everything in it, who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives life and breath and everything to everyone. From one man, he made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth, determining their set times and the fixed limits of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move about and exist. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, But if you seek the Lord your God, you will find him, if you indeed seek him with all your heart and soul. In Proverbs 8.17, God has wisdom, says, I I will love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. In Jeremiah 29, 13, God told his people, when you seek me in prayer and worship, you will find me available to you if you seek me with all your heart and soul. And Jesus, of course, in Matthew 7, 7 said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock and the door will be opened for you. 
And in Acts 1, 8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the farthest parts of the earth. I ask you today, did any of Jesus' disciples make it to the farthest parts of the earth? No, they did not. But we have. So seek him. Ask. Wait on God. Pray for your friends and your acquaintances and your family. Pray in Jesus' name. Live in Jesus Christ and go in his spirit and power to do the things that he purposed for you beforehand to do, that God may be revealed in you. People, it's the same Holy Spirit as the early church had, but we don't see the Spirit's manifestation as they saw it today. We have to pray. I'm going to close now with the prayer that Deacon Allen often leads our church in. It's a prayer from St. Augustine, and I ask you to join me. Let's pray. O Lord, grant that we may desire you, and desiring you, seek you, and seeking you, find you, and finding you, be satisfied with you forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.